You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Chapter 17, going to be beginning in verse 10. Been studying the second missionary journey of Paul as he began in Antioch, head on north through Syria and Cilicia and Asia Minor. And uh, we remember that in chapter uh, 16, he was waiting for direction on where to go when the Lord gave him a vision of a European man, a Macedonian man, calling them over towards Philippi. And thus began the uh, gospel penetration into Europe, uh, which is there to this day. Uh, Awesome things happened there in Philippi. They made their way southwest towards Thessalonica. Uh, the beginning of chapter 17, we studied Paul reasoning and persuading uh, the men and the women there in Thessalonica about Christ and from the scriptures. And uh, you remember that uh, they were persecuted there in Thessalonica. And as they're persecuted, to, leads us to today where Paul is uh, moved on down there to the area of Berea, as our really good projector guy with the mouse is showing you where that would be today. And, uh, and so in verse 10, it says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And so this uh, persecution that seemed to follow Paul wherever he went, um, moved them on out of Thessalonica, 45 miles away to Berea. Uh, and they did this at night. This wasn't the first time that Paul had to uh, run away in the night. You remember early on in his Christianity and in his ministry, he was actually let down uh, out of a city through a, uh, by a basket as he hid in a basket. And later on in his life, he would write that that was a very humbling experience for him. But uh, they slip away by night, you know, in kind of an underground railroad fashion uh, on into the city of Berea there. The first thing they did is they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And there in um, verse 11, you read that these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So there's a comparison between the Jews there in Berea and those in the previous city of Thessalonica. The Bereans were fair-minded or can be translated noble-minded as they received the word of God with readiness, with a willing mind, as it was the scriptures that Paul presented to them. They were willing to hear from the scriptures rather than the language that's used in Thessalonica in verses 5 Uh, through nine, that there was a reasoning going on. There was explaining and demonstrating or persuasion uh, going on in those Jews. But here we see uh, that these had more of a willingness to hear, uh, especially since the source of the reasoning was from the word of God uh, uh, itself. And so they searched the scriptures, the Bereans did daily to find out whether these Things were so. Rather than shutting them out from the start, the Jews in Berea listened eagerly, as the New Living Translation puts it. And they would afterwards search the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, to check up on Paul and Silas, as the New Living says. They checked up on Paul and Silas to see if they were really teaching the truth. 
And man, Acts chapter 17, verse 11 has always been just a verse that I've underlined and I've loved and I've, I've always wanted to be like the Berean. Whenever I come to the word, I want to have an open mind. I want to have a, a ready and a willing mind, but I also want to be like the Berean and that I would search the, 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 the scriptures whenever I was taught by somebody or whenever I'd hear with some, uh, something from somebody, I don't want to just take that as absolute truth, but I want to look at the word of God and see if that's true. And may we be like that as well. And may we be Bereans using the resources God's given us to, to dig deep into the scriptures, find out if the things that Rory teaches us, or, you know, the guy that we listen to on the radio or the guy that we see throughout the week to see if those things are so we don't have to take them uh, at their word. You don't have to take me at my word, but I encourage you to always go to the word to find out if these things are so. And man, today we've got all sorts of awesome resources. I mean, uh, BibleGateway.com is just a great uh, scripture uh, reference and searching tool. Uh, BlueLetterBible.org is also very useful, not to mention the, the thousands of, of teachers and preachers and commentaries and uh, you know, tools and resources that are out there in this real age of information. But we see that the Bereans were not a group of people that were lazy. Uh, that they were, first of all, eager to hear the word. They were eager to hear the word. I know that describes a lot of you. You're eager to hear. You know, these were the type of people that would bring a, a notebook to church with them, you know, and write down the things that ministered to them or write down questions they might have or, or you know, write down just things that, oh man, that's, that's just, that's so powerful, God, what you're speaking to me right now. And then you could just picture them going home and, and researching, digging deeper, getting the concordance out and, and, you know, really digging into the word. They weren't lazy by any means. They searched the scriptures. How often did they search the scriptures? Daily, daily they search the scriptures. Is that something that describes you, man or a woman that daily is in the word? Daily searching through the scriptures. As Jesus says, you know, give us this day our daily bread. And we can start that today in our life. If that's not something that, that's been happening in your, in your life. Maybe at one point you read the Bible often. Maybe at one point you've read through the whole Bible but, you know, it's just not a one-time thing and you're done with it. Daily, we need to be washed in the water of the Word. We need to have our weapon of both offense and defense in our hands, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know, and just be spending that time with Jesus in His Word out of a love relationship with Him. Because we want to spend that time with Him. You know, in 2 Peter chapter 1, you know, Peter says, Man, as long as I'm still in this tent, as long as I'm still breathing, I'm going to keep teaching these things to you. And you know what? As long as I'm still breathing, I'm always going to be encouraging you all to be spending time, excuse me, in the word of God, to be spending time reading, to be spending time searching. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to the word of God, though your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword. It's living and powerful. Hebrews goes on to say that it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. We need to be in it. We want to be in it. We love to be in it. And to be searching the scripture. 
to be trolling and looking and diving and digging and, and brushing off things in the word and, and, you know, digging into what the words mean in it, expounding in the scriptures. You know, Christianity is in an age of, of heresy all around us. And there are so many different messages out there. There are so many people that call themselves Christians and have a plenty of message to bring. But so much of that message is false doctrine. So much of that message is deviated from the course, the, the true course that Scripture teaches us. But for us, man, the Word of God is our final authority. You know, we want to be able to rest on the Word of God and use it as our foundation. Never elevating a, a man or a preacher above the Word of God. I, I know that that's not a temptation here in Crook County for you guys with, with uh, your pastor. But, you know, never elevating a man or a preacher above the Word, but always you know, using the word as that authority. And so in verse 12, we see what happens when somebody receives the word with readiness, when somebody searches the scriptures daily to find out if these things are so. And what happens is, it says, therefore, many of them believed and um, also uh, not a few Greeks and prominent women as well as men. And what happens when we're spending time in the word and searching the word and testing what we're told by the word. Man, belief happens. Belief in true doctrine happens. And we see here that uh, an observation of who the gospel's for here. Man, the, the gospel's for Jews and for Gentiles. The gospel's for men and for women. The gospel is for well-known people and unknown people. Gospel's for the uttermost and the guttermost you know, man, the gospel just, it reached in and it impacted these Greek guys, these Gentiles. It impacted these prominent women, you know, those that were kind of the down and out in the Jewish culture heard this gospel of grace that Paul preached. And man, they relished that gospel. They wanted that gospel. It was impactful to them. You know, as the Jewish man would wake up every morning and thank God that he wasn't a Gentile, a dog, or a woman, you know. And here you see wherever the gospel goes, man, it liberates women. There's, there's liberation for women. Where there was heavy hand, a heavy hand on them, man, the, the gospel just brings freedom. See, the, the Jews and the Gentiles just loving the gospel of grace that Paul preached. And so, as there's some revival happening, there are not a few Gentiles or prominent women or well or, or men believing, but verse thirteen, there's that word but. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. This was a common thing for Paul when he would preach. Was was Jews from the previous city were so opposed to not really Paul himself, but the message he brought, the gospel of grace. Uh, the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ, they opposed him so much that they would travel hundreds of miles, or you know, in this case, 45 miles, just to oppose uh, the message that is preached. And so it preached, and so it says there at the end of verse 13, they stirred up the crowds, or they agitated the crowds against the gospel. They planted seeds of doubt in the minds so that, uh, that Paul and Silas wouldn't be received there. In, uh, in Berea. So the enemy just really at work there to destroy uh, the message of salvation through Jesus. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. 
but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him uh, to Athens and received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him. Uh, With all speed, they departed. Now, when Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. So he makes it down to this area of Athens. It was the prominent capital city of the ancient Greek state Attila there. But it had these magnificent buildings that were completely dedicated to false uh, gods, to these idols all over the city. You know, it it was written by by a man in that day, a Roman writer, that it was more common to find a god in Athens than to find a man. And uh, just idols everywhere uh, that you looked. And as Paul kind of does his intro tour of the city on the double-decker bus, you know, as he's looking around, what kind of city am I in? Uh, No doubt praying over the city. He's just seeing, man, there is idolatry everywhere. In this city that's really a capital place for learning and education, uh, a really a prominent place for philosophers to go. Um, many of the, the you know, famous philosophers such as Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Epicurus, Zeno, all these guys uh, made their home there in Athens. Uh, and during the Greek uh, when, when the Greeks ruled, it was a very popular city. But at this time, when Rome ruled, uh, there were about 10,000 people in Athens. It was a smaller town than Prineville. And, uh, but it was still a place where uh, just those that are educated and those that were intellectuals and philosophers, they would still come to debate and bring new ideas to the area. And so as Paul is going through um, this, this city that's left her glory days behind, he's just sickened by the idolatry. His spirit is provoked within him or, or it's stirred or exasperated. You know, he's done with being patient with the idolatry. He's actually annoyed with the idolatry of this city that was, as the language there says, given over to idols. Or if you're a King James guy, wholly given over to idols, uh, which speaks of it being utterly idolatrous. Utterly idolatrous. And, and Paul was fed up. He was done. Uh, his patience was gone. And, you know, same thing should be the case for us. You know, as we look at our community, as we look at our friends and relatives and co-workers and, you know, uh, you know associates and all of that who have been wholly given over to idols. And for the most part in this day and age, you know, the idols are not carved images per se. But, you know, it can be anything as, as we've been studying. You know, the human heart is an idol factory. You know, anything, you name it, even if it's a good thing, can become an idol. You know, these passions, these hobbies, these things that we dedicate all of our time and our resources. And, and we, we, we count the cost for these things so much. And yet they're not Jesus and they're not a furtherance of his kingdom. And as we see our friends and our relatives given over to these idols, our heart should be provoked within us. We should be grieved. We should be annoyed at these idols because the glory that rightfully belongs to God is now given over to these things. As Romans tells us, you know, the, the, the worship that should go to the creator has, has gone to the created things. 
And so, you know, Paul just, you know, his stomach seems to be turned as he just looks at all these idols. In verse 17, you know, he does something about it. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So he did something about it. Number one, he did his custom, as verse two tells us, uh, his custom was to go into the synagogue and to share the gospel. Being a visiting Jew, uh, they would let um, the visitors just share a word of exhortation with the whole synagogue. So he always had that in there with the Jews. He also had the cultural background that was similar, uh, the same you know, God, Yahweh, that they were referencing, and the same scriptures that he was able to point to Christ to, point to Jesus to, uh, in those scriptures. So that was the first thing that he did. But he also then went to the marketplace uh, where there just happened to be people. And so on the one end of things, we, we within our circles have our synagogues, if you will. We have those areas where culturally we have a same background with people and we're able to use that as our in with them. You know, if you're a hunter, you've got all these friends and all these people that just enjoy doing those, that, that activity and you can get in with them and be in the midst and share the kingdom of God with them. You know, so it's not bad to, to be wearing the camo and to be strapping the knife on your belt and all of that, but be around these people that also do that so you can tell them about Jesus. You know, if you're a bowler, then man, go up to Rimrock Lanes and be around non-Christians and I wish I knew the bowling term, throw the lead or whatever it is, I don't know, whatever it is that you do when you're bowling. I did go bowling on Monday for the first time in years. I got an 80, baby, that's right, tied my wife. Second round, got a 92. Anyways, uh, as Lindsay and I were there, we're just looking around at all these non-believers. And I was so thankful for like Earl, who is in the bowling league and he's around non-believers all the time. And, you know, he wears a Christian shirt that says, you know, Jesus Christ is everything to me. And he's just really been seeing that's an opportunity. Bowling's not his everything anymore. Jesus is his everything. But he still looks for those opportunities to be around those guys that like to do the same things, that similar culture. If you're an artist, go to the art shows or take painting classes with other non-believers and, and consider that just that cultural, um, that cultural un- unity that is an opportunity for the gospel. You know, if you're into scrapbooking, then go down to the scrapbooking store and, you know, cut your construction paper and paste it onto other things and put the glitter on it with other ladies that want to get away from their kids and do that as well. Okay. I've been in those stores, but, uh, you know, look for those opportunities. You know, if you like the rodeo, then go to the rodeo. There are non-Christians everywhere, and it's an opportunity to, to share the gospel with these guys that will receive you or these gals that will receive you into their circle because there's that, that in with them. And that's an awesome thing. But then you also have Paul going to the marketplace which was just, you know, the south end of Athens, these giant columnades there that, that every vendor possible would, would go and set up shop and cattle were for sale and street magicians and, you know, just the, the, the people that were begging. Everything was there. It was where the people were. And I love the end of that verse there, 17. He, he would share with the people who happened to be there. Don't you love that? 
I mean, these weren't the guys that, you know, had the Jewish background like him or, or liked to hike to Damascus or whatever, you know. But these were just people that happened to be there. And he would share with them. And look for those opportunities as well. It's been said that if you want to catch fish, go to where the fish are. If you want to save souls, fish men, then it's logical to go to where men are. You might not have everything in common with them, but they're men and they're there. And you can pray for that open door. You know, I went and watched uh, a football game back in the fall and, and uh, for the, the Cowboys and went over there and we're watching and, you know, I'm kind of bad at athletic events. I more talk to people around me, you know, than, than like, oh, number 18, just passed it. Oh, yeah, you know, and uh, I just total op- open doors with these people around me as my son went over and played with their son and we shared our snacks that we bought them and just got to just have conversation with them. There's these open doors all around us. Look for those opportunities. Go to where the people are. And for those of you that have ever gotten to lead someone to Christ and had that privilege, and you get to share that story of, oh yeah, here's Bill, you know, and and we were just, you know, we were just fishing by each other at the lake and, you know, I had to borrow a worm or something. And, and, but you know how neat to share that testimony and, and Bill just happened to be there. Fishing by the lake, you know? He just happened to be there. And may the Lord just like, may you have a sensitivity to the Lord when he shows you, hey, this guy, this gal, they happened to be here for a reason. Seize that opportunity. Or go to the marketplaces. Go to that place where the people are. The city square, you know, the the farmer's market, the, the football game, you know, whatever it might be. Be aware of that. Grab the Central Oregonian and just be mindful of what events are happening in the town that we could go there, you could go there, and just be a light there. Be where the people are. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, verse 18, encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So these philosophers come onto come onto the scene there. They they encounter uh, Paul there, and you know what was the thing that really caused their attention to be put on him? It was the preaching of the resurrection. It was the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That was intriguing to them, and they wanted to hear more. They kind of insult him by calling him a babbler, and really in the, the original language it means he's kind of a, a guy that um, stays at somebody's house but never helps the host out. You know, So they're like, what's this guy just doing hanging out in our marketplace, talking to all our people? You know, When's he going to step up and like, let everybody know what's going on here? When's he going to step up and, and you know, share and uh, share with everybody the message that he's got there. And uh, these Epicureans, they had this philosophy that was entirely enjoy life. Okay, so they were just all about enjoying life and finding pleasure in things. Then you had the Stoics who basically just said endure life. And they were really on opposite ends of the philosophy camp, but they were all interested in this message uh, that Paul brought here. And so, uh, you know, w- w- verse 20, it says, 
Um, or verse 19, they took him, they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. You know, this is a new thing to them and they've heard everything. You know, they were the people that, that had heard everything. In fact, look at verse uh, 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else, but either to tell or to hear some new thing. I mean, they would love this day and age where there's talk radio and talk shows and they're just, oh, I just got to have my ears tickled. Tell me the, the next thing. But this was, this was new. This message of the resurrection from the dead. We want to hear more about this. And so in verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. They brought him to this place. The, the, um, the rock of Aries is what it means. Or Mars Hill is another um, name of this place, this rocky outcropping where the Supreme Court of Greece was. You guys, this is profound. This is an opportunity that Paul lived for, you know, preaching to the Supreme Court in Athens. And so as he went there to this rocky outcropping and he, he began to speak to a court that would hear criminal cases as well as any philosophy that would come into the city and they could condemn a, a philosophy as just being ludicrous. Here he is, an open door uh, to preach it, an open door to preach it. And he, and he loved this. You know, this is, this is what he lived for. And so he says at the end of verse 22, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious or you're too superstitious. <laughs> For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. You know, the, the Greeks had every type of God that you could think of. And there in Athens, they would have shrines to every type of God. But then one day you can just picture it happening. You know, they're making the God to Zeus and they're making the God to Mars and they're making the God to this and that. And as they're making these gods and chiseling them out of marble and stone and all of that gold and, and all that, one of the guys is like, you know, Hey, there's a lot of these gods, aren't there? Oh yeah, there's a lot. There's, well, what if we're forgetting one? Bing, <laughs> you know, Oh, what if we're forgetting one? We're either missing out on blessing from this God or we're going to be judged by the, Oh man, we got to, we got to at least have like kind of a blanket statement out there. Like we love all the gods the same, you know? Um, and so they created this and it was not just here. There were, they were all over in the day, these shrines to these unknown gods. So Paul says, Hey, this God over here that you, you worship in ignorance I'm going to tell you who he is today. I'm going to tell him so that you won't have that excuse of ignorance anymore. And so he begins to preach this God uh, to, the, to the Athenians there, the Supreme Court there. And he says, God, in verse 24, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and of earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So one of the first things that he tells them is that this God that you, you know, you know is out there. You just don't know him. He's the creator of everything. He's the creator of the universe. So that's number one. He's the creator of the world and of everything. He's the Lord. He's the master of heaven and earth that he created. 
And he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. You go back to Stephen's message in Acts chapter 7. And Stephen recounts, you know, the, the story of David wanting to build the temple and Solomon, David's son, ending up building the temple. And just that, that prophet who said, uh, you know, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You know, God is the creator of the universe. You can't contain him in a little box. And so to say, hey, big God, you know, heaven's your throne. Earth is like the place you set your foot on. I mean, it's like, how about we build you like a little spot on a hill and, and that's where you can be. He's like, man, I, I don't just dwell in a temple made with man's hands. And then he goes on to say, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath and all things. So the second thing that he preaches to them is that God is the sustainer of men rather than the Athenian view that, uh, that God was sustained by men. You know, you watch modern day movies like, um, shoot, thought about it all day. You know, it's it's a modern movie, the, Clash of the Titans, okay? Uh, it's all about those Greek gods, and he's riding the Pegasus, and he's fighting all these big, giant scorpions and all that. And as you look at the, the mythology behind it all, these gods were made more powerful when people worshipped them. But if men start worshipping other gods, that god's power decreases, and another god becomes more powerful. And Paul says to them, hey, your guys' little philosophy that that's what the gods, that's how it works, it's not how it works. There's one god, he doesn't need you at all. He doesn't need your service at all, as if he would repay you back. But rather, he's the one who sustains you. And to me, this is such an encouraging scripture because God doesn't need my faith. God doesn't need my service as if I give it to him and then he owes me salvation or he owes me favor. But rather, he came to serve me and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gives to all life and breath and all things. And he's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he's determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling. So, you know, the Athenians had this view that, that um, you know, they were kind of the elites and then everyone else was a barbarian. And he brings it down to, hey, you know what? God created a man, Adam, and he was your father, and every man came from Adam. And we know that it wasn't until Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, where the nations were created and spread out, all the different languages there. And, uh, and so he really kind of brings this uh, humility to the people of Athens, as well as by telling them that God is sovereign on the face of the earth and predetermines uh, the times and the boundaries of nations and kingdoms. And so, you know, the, the um, philosophies of the day were that everything just happens by chance, but Paul brings in the doctrinal truth that God is sovereign over everything. And if a kingdom rises 
it rises by God's divine sovereignty. And if a kingdom falls, it falls by God's divine sovereignty. The day that uh, the, the Declaration of Independence was set, you know, and, and we were, you know, we were succeeded from Britain, the Lord had determined that day in his sovereignty, you know, and he didn't allow the nation to be divided through the civil war, you know, we're still a union. And, and that was God's plan and his sovereignty. We know that the kings and the kingdoms, uh, they're there for God's purposes. He's sovereign over when men even live. And why does he use that? He, you know, in his sovereignty, he's able to use those times and those nations and those boundaries, verse 27, so that men would seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he's not far from each one of us. You know, I always thought, man, I would have liked to have been born in the early 1900s. You know, that era where, you know, it's kind of still a little bit of the old west, you know, and guys are riding around on horses, but there might be like a Model T go by and ride your horse through town and no one cares if you got a gun on your hip, you know, and guys still got manners and call ladies ma'am and all that stuff. But then a, an airplane flies. I, that's such an intriguing time for me that the technology coming in, but still a little bit of, you know, you guys are like, you are the weirdest guy I've ever seen. I know. I apologize. But for some reason, in God's sovereignty, he said, Rory, November 14th, 1981, Klamath Falls, Oregon. That's, that's the place for you. And you know what? He's using me in this day and age. He, he used that time and the situation and the people around me so that I might grope for God and find God. Uh, and then also use, be used to show other people who God is. You know, So in his sovereignty, he's placed us in this day and age, and he's placed America to be where we are in this day and age. He's a sovereign ruler over the nations. But also notice that God is so near to each one of us. As Romans tells us in chapter, uh, chapter 10, that the word of God is near to us. The word of God is near. It's not far from us, but it's near to us. It's in our hearts. It's in our mind today. As, as the preacher preaches and we get into the word, the word is so near. God is not far from you. And the very next verse there in Romans chapter 10 tells us, because it's so near, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus has been raised from the dead, you'll be saved. Today, the gospel is near to you. Today, God is near to you. Today, God is knocking on the door of your heart, saying, respond to me. Let me come in and dine with you and you with me. Let me change you. I don't want to be your enemy. I don't want you to be my enemy. I want to be your friend. I want to, be, I want to adopt you. I want to be your father. I want to be near to you. The middle wall of separation has been broken down by the gospel, by what Jesus has done. Won't you just draw near to the Lord as he's drawn near to you today? Won't you respond to him and receive him? It goes on to say, verse 28, he's not far from us. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. 
as also some of your own poets have said. You know, Paul quotes Epimendes here, quotes one of the own Grecian poets and says, that guy got it right. When he knew that it's in God that we live and move and have our being, God is the sustainer of our life. As Colossians chapter 1 says, he holds everything together. He holds everything together. He sustains us. So the, the poet, in him we live, we move, we have our being. And then also another poet said, we are also his offspring. Verse 29, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's divine, uh, by art and man's devising. You know, the, you know, the Grecian philosophers, they knew that they were the offspring of God, but in their ignorance, you know, uh, in their, um, in their rebellious heart, you know, they let that slip by. They let people worship what they wanted. It's just tragic because they knew they were the offspring of God. And it's a ridiculous thought to think, hey, think if we're the offspring of God, then let's fashion something and worship it as God. That's ridiculous. You read Isaiah 44. You can go read that later. Just how ridiculous it is for a man to cut down a tree, use part of that tree to burn the fire and make his bread, and then use the other part of the tree. He carves it, makes himself an idol, and worships it. When really he's the one that's sustaining that thing and has made that thing. But we're the offspring of this God that Paul preaches. Verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. These times of, of ignorance were something that uh, God overlooked or he winked at or he did not punish those times of ignorance. Uh, ignorance speaks of being unaware because of a lack of relevant information or knowledge. And maybe you've kind of been going through a time of ignorance, you know, your life. You've never been around the Bible. You've never heard the scriptural teachings. There's a time of ignorance for you, but God has brought you here today to confirm what already has been spoken to your heart by his spirit. That there's a God, that he created you, that he sustains you, that he rules over the nations. And then even... He confirmed today, verse 31, that he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. There's going to be a day when you'll be judged and that judgment will be by the man ordained by God the Father the man, I like it when he's called that, the man, the man, Jesus Christ. And how do we know? How are we sure that Jesus will be that righteous judge? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. He's not dead. He's not in a tomb in Jerusalem today, but he's alive. He's going to return and he's going to righteously judge the world. As Johnny Cash says in his song, The Man, there's 
a man going around taking names and he's decided who to free and who to blame, everybody won't be treated all the same when the man comes around. The hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and in each sup. For you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around. There's going to be a day when Jesus comes and he judges the world in righteousness. And you read about that judgment in Revelation chapter 20. Let's just read that at the end of Revelation chapter 20. In verse 11, the great white throne judgment. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whom, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so you see that day. It's a sobering passage to read. That day when Jesus judges the world in righteousness. And each man that stood before him is going to have to give account. There will be books that will be opened. No doubt a book of every work that you've ever done and how it compares to God's righteous standards given to us in the law. Then there's the book of the Lamb's book of life. And anyone who repents of their sin and turns to Jesus Christ and obeys the gospel, their name is written in that book of life. And those whose names are found written in that book will uh, inherit eternal life. Is your name in that book? When you stand before Jesus as the righteous judge, you're not going to be able to to claim ignorance because by God's sovereignty, you've been brought here to this place that you could hear that you're a sinner. You might not be like the Athenians who carved out gods and stuck them up on pedestals, but you've given your time, energy, resources, And you've counted costs for things other than Jesus. You've cared more about people, places, things, stuff than you have about Jesus. And that's idolatry. You've worshipped the created thing rather than the creator. And you've been told here today that Jesus loved you so much that he laid down his life willingly. And he shed his blood as an atonement for your sins. For without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Jesus shed his perfect blood. That if anybody would believe in him, they would not be put to shame. They'd not be put to shame. But they would inherit everlasting life. And they'd have their sins forgiven. But as Paul said to the Athenians, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. And so will you repent? Will you turn around 180 degrees? Will you change your mind about who Jesus is, who God is? And will you obey who Jesus is, who God is? You read of the Athenians 
response there. But before you do, just look at the end of verse 31. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. It's a second reference in this chapter of the resurrection. Put your little R by it. Because man, again, how much of your proclaiming of the gospel contains the resurrection in it? When you share Christ, you guys, share that he's risen. Share that he's alive. It was Paul's practice. But their response, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So we'll go ahead and have Stuart come up. You can close your Bible. And let's just respond to the word of God today. Today, for some, for the first time, God has revealed who he really is. Before you came through these doors, there was just kind of this shrine in your life to some God out there somewhere. But today, he's brought you to this place that you might know who that God really is. That you might know him. And today, he's not far from you. Today, he's near to you. That if you would grope for him today, you would find him. He's brought you to this place in his sovereignty that you might find him. Today, the word is near you. It's in your mind. It's in your heart. It's been discerning the thoughts and intents of your heart. Jesus is near you today. Would you just respond to him? In your heart right now, just tear down all the other idols, just all those things, all those people, all those friends, all those activities, all those addictions and rushes and buzzes that you've been searching for. The hope of happiness found in other people and all of that. Just cast that down today. And turn to the one that Paul described. The creator of heaven and earth. The Lord of heaven and earth. The ruler of all nations. The maker of human beings. The sustainer of life. Man, if you've been struggling and just... This feels like your world is crumbling apart. Come to the one, come to the God today who holds everything together. The one that it's in him we live and move and have our being. Man, I want to be in him. The one that holds things together. Come to him today. Just in your heart. Just right now, just close your eyes and just believe that he's near to you today, that he's calling you to himself today, that he's brought you here. It was his plan to get you here, that he might show you his love, 
that he loves you so much that he laid down his life on the cross. He shed his blood that you could be forgiven. And he rose from the dead that you too would rise from the dead and walk in newness of life. When you stand before the judge on that day, may he say to you, enter into the joy that I've prepared for you. Rather than saying, get away from me, I've never known you. And just right now in your heart, just as you know God, he's shown himself to you today. Give him your heart that he may know you. Don't think about what you're going to do this afternoon. Don't think about the people around you. This is a moment between you and the Lord that he's orchestrated from the beginning of of, of time that you might know him, that you might be saved today. Saved from your sins and saved for eternal life. Just right now, just surrender. Don't be like the Athenians. Some of them mocked. Some of them said, oh, I'll hear you again on this, Rory. I'll come again some other time. I'll hear you again. Don't be like them. Be like Dionysius. Surrender your life and receive new life. You can just do that during this last song. Just an amazing song. Just surrendering everything to Jesus. And Lord, for those of us that are Christians and are believers in you, Lord, we just, we want to be not within these pews, Lord. We want to be out in the world furthering your kingdom. We want to be out in the highways, in the byways, in the marketplaces, in the areas with cultural similarities, but also with those people that just happen to be there. Lord, help us to walk in that, Lord. May we lay aside anything in our life that hinders that from happening. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further on our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.